Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today I think we're going to be learning quite a bit on uh, micro mobility and then also electric scooters. I think that with our guest, you know, he he has been at it in this space for quite a while and uh, you know, this space right now is very hot, so excited to to have him here and without further ado, Sanjay Dastor, welcome to the Dealmaker Show today. Thank you for having me. So your parents were originally from India, and they happened to meet here in, in the U.S., and then you were born and, and, and raised in, in Atlanta originally. How, how was life there? Uh, it was great. It was very suburban. Uh, actually, some of my perspective on transportation comes from the different places I've lived. But I was born in Atlanta, and then I lived in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and then Dallas, Texas, before I moved to the Bay Area for school. And were your parents entrepreneurial or 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 were more like on on maybe academics or, or what was their background out of curiosity? Yeah, my, my mom's background uh, kind of professionally was in uh, industrial engineering and operations. Um, but then she was very entrepreneurial. She actually started her own business. Uh, and I learned a bit about kind of what her mindset was going through that uh, when I was younger. My dad was academic. He studied textile engineering and was a postdoc um, and then a professor before he changed careers uh, back into computer science, which he'd been interested in when he was in college. So, um, yeah, I had a mix of, of both of those. So then how, how do you guys uh, land in, in, in California? So I, uh, so we, we lived in Louisiana. Um, my dad was a professor at Louisiana State University, and then he switched careers. Uh, his, his, his minor uh, and kind of hobby in school and graduate school was like very large database architecture which is a very interesting hobby to have in the 1980s. Um, and so when he was doing this academic work, he actually got more interested in computer science, switched careers, and we moved to Dallas, which was the closest technology hub in the South. So there were a lot of companies there, like FedEx had a large technology center there, Lockheed Martin, American Airlines and Sabre, Nortel, uh, Texas Instruments. So there were a lot of companies there. So he worked there for a while. And then I went to the Bay Area to study mechanical engineering um, for college. So then... So then what, what, at what point do you think that you started to develop this love for, for computers? Um, for my dad, actually. So he, uh, he helped me learn how to program when I was in middle school. And um, we had a computer at home, and I was able to start with QBasic and then with Pascal um, and started programming relatively early uh, with a lot of help from him. 
really, really cool. So then you go to Berkeley, and then after that, you uh, did an internship, and, and you actually went to NASA. And then you did your Master's of Science. And, and I guess at that point, you know, you were already there probably in the Bay Area, understanding what was going on, and, and you became a researcher. So what were you doing as a researcher? Yeah, so my interest in high school um, turned a bit from computer science into robotics. And so I ended up spending a lot of time uh, uh, in, in, in college uh, in an interdisciplinary biology lab that studied how animals move. So it was cockroaches, uh, geckos, crabs, different kinds of animals, and looking at how they would um, move around and how you could apply what you learn from biology to different fields like computer animation or robotics. So I ended up doing some work in, on the research side at JPL uh, on the robotics side and then at SRI um, in Menlo Park, both of which were really interesting and ended up continuing that work into a master's and PhD, uh, which I didn't end up finishing, but uh, was very interesting. And just out of curiosity, how do cockroaches move? Uh, it's interesting. So cockroaches move. Um, it turns out like a, a lot of robotics research had said, OK, if, if your leg has, you know, 20 muscles in it, then you need to build a, a robotic leg that has 20 motors. And so you'd have one motor kind of that simulated each muscle, but it turns out that's not how your body works. You actually have a lot of mechanical stability, kind of like the suspension of a car that's built into your muscles and, and your tendon and ligament. So a cockroach can run very quickly um, over many different kinds of terrain because it has the right mechanical tuning, like the kind of the body is built the right way. It doesn't have to actually think that hard about running. So we would study that and then apply those things to things like prosthetics design or robotics. Mm. So then why, what got you kind of like into, into philosophy? Because philosophy, you went, you went to do your PhD at Stanford, and, and I'm not sure if you completed that or not, and, and we can get into that, but what, what got you interested into philosophy? Because it seems like a little bit far off from, from where you were coming from. Oh, yeah. So I, I was doing a, a PhD, but it was in, uh, it was in engineering, um, not, not, in, not in philosophy. Um, okay. So it was continuing the research work, um, but there was a lot more product design in that program. So a lot of okay. how people, like how do users think about products? Uh, why do products that the designers think are good products, why do they fail? And why do products maybe that you wouldn't think are as good, why do they succeed? So there's a lot more product design and not just the engineering side of things, which was quite interesting yeah. as well. So then let's talk about your love for last mile transportation. And and so Boosted was your your first company, the first company you co-founded. So how did the um, the idea, you know, how, how did it incubate? Yeah, so Boosted was, was a bit of a, an interesting story. I had two different friends who were independently working on the same idea. Um, one of them, uh, Matt, he had he'd done his master's with me in aerospace engineering um, and then had finished and, and gone to go work. But he had this idea because he'd spent a lot of time in San Francisco. And this is back in 2009, 2010. He, he, he snowboarded and he motorcycled. Um, and he was, you know, he's like, man, I, I wish I had some way to get around the city that was something more like snowboarding, where I had that sense of fun and that sense of freedom. Um, and I, you know, as, as a different people have different risk profiles. So Matt was one of those people who felt comfortable, you know, wearing a helmet on his way to work uh, and seeing what he might on a motorcycle. So for him, it was just a way to have a lot of fun. But he had this idea that maybe people could use something smaller than a car to get around cities quicker um, and thought it could work on campuses, thought it could work in cities. So it's very interesting. And then separately, one of my lab mates in my PhD program, we were working with these motors and batteries that uh, were just becoming available um, for a bunch of applications. One big industry that came out of that was drones. 
So all the motors and batteries that are used in drones started with remote control airplanes for hobby, like hobby use. So the same motors and batteries John was looking at and said, hey, you know, I could actually build something um, to get around campus that we're on much more quickly. And I ended up, you know, connecting the two of them and the three of us worked on it as a side project for a bit and it turned out and turned into a company. So how did it turn into a company? What, what, what was that the moment where you guys were like, okay, let's, let's say, pull the switch and, and let's make this be a little bit more serious and professional? So it was kind of two stages. The first stage was we, um, we decided to put some of our own savings into the project and, uh, and actually try to file a patent. Uh, and we didn't think it was going to be like a massive thing. We just thought people kept chasing us uh, on campus when we would ride the prototype around and asking us, hey, could I buy that from you? Where did you get that? So enough people were wanting it from us already. We said, oh, maybe we could build some of these and sell them. And at the time, this is 2011, uh, 2012, um, Kickstarter was just becoming something, you know, um, that, that people could use to fund ideas like this. And so we were like, oh, maybe we'll, you know, file a patent and then, you know, you know, launch a Kickstarter campaign and build 50 of these or 100 of these. Um, and so that was the idea in 2011. That was the first time we kind of thought, hey, maybe there's a company and this isn't just like a, you know, just a thing we're building for ourselves. And then this, the second uh, part of that was when we were accepted into Y Combinator um, and Stardex uh, in the summer of 2012, where we actually went from just putting in like a little bit of our own money and working in the evenings to, um, to you know, kind of having a good excuse to take a leave of absence from school um, and actually work on it. Um, because we now had some money to do the development process. And, and so really, that, was, that was when we actually incorporated. And really interesting that because in 2012, Y Combinator was like very much heavy on, on technology. And I think that now they've kind of like broadened up a little bit more of the scope. So I guess for you guys, I mean, applying with, um, with, 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 with this board that has some technology applied to it, you know, it was probably like, um, like something new for them, no? Um, it wasn't that new. So there were a few companies that had gone through with uh, hardware, for example. So Pebble, okay. uh, which was the first smartwatch. Yeah. Um, so, so Pebble was a wire combinator company. And I, and I remember um, when we uh, initially, uh, the way we ended up applying was uh, we were at, uh, I, was at, I was at a birthday dinner for a friend. Um, and his old roommate who was sitting next to me um, was the co-founder of a company called Order Ahead and um, uh, that was doing food delivery. And he was like, oh, I write a longboard. Your idea sounds very cool. I would, you know, you should apply to Y Combinator. And I said, no, no, that's actually not a good fit for us. Like they do software. We're doing hardware. It's completely different. And he was like, no, no, trust me. It, it's a great program. You'll like it. And I said, okay. Uh, and so he, he wrote us a recommendation and we applied. And, and then when we weren't sure if that would be something that would be a good fit for us, because as you said, they were doing a lot more software products. And I, I actually, um, uh, Eric from Pebble was very kind and gave me some time to chat about that topic. And he said, look, like they're not going to help you decide, you know, which factory to work with to build a component. Like that's not their expertise, at least not yet, but they will help you in thinking about how to build a great company and, you know, hire the right people and think about the culture and think about fundraising and all the other topics. And we said, oh, that's actually, we hadn't even thought about those being a challenge. And so, um, so it turned out to be a great fit uh, for what we were doing. And now obviously there's a lot more work they're doing in areas like biology and hardware and, um, you know, longer term projects. So at the time it, it seemed like less of a fit, but it ended up being a great fit. So then, so then when you were coming out of it, how were you thinking about building a great company? Um, I mean, there were a few rules and, and they've been very public about what those 
the guidance they give to people is like things, you know, around hiring and, and how to think about the first people you hire, don't hire too quickly. Um, things around um, making a few users really love the product uh, versus having a, a lot of people who, who kind of like it. Um, you know, thinking about uh, uh, the way that you, um, you know, fundraise from investors and the kind of investors you'd want to work with. Um, so there are there a bunch of areas that they were very helpful with um, that set a good foundation for the company. Um, but Got things it. that we hadn't really thought of before. Got it. So then, what was the um, what was the process of uh, of capitalizing the business? Because I know that Y Combinator has the demo day, and and that gives a nice boost on the fundraising front. So how did uh, things kick kickstart for you guys on the financing side? Yeah. So we we actually um, we we had thought maybe we would be able to kickstart the company just with with Kickstarter and and do pre sales and then use that to fund our development. Uh, because we weren't sure that we were going to be a fit for taking, you know, seed investment or venture investment for the company. Um, and what we ended up realizing was that we were able to hire some friends of ours who were very talented at what they did uh, and pay them a salary that that they needed uh, for family and, and for, for their own expenses. Um, we were able to do that by having that funding, and that changed the trajectory of our work. And so that was the moment for us where we said, Maybe it's a really great idea for us to to raise some money, and then the process for us was in some ways challenging because people were not clear on what a hardware business would return. There was some investments being made at the time in in connected hardware systems, but it was still quite early, and um, you know distribution and other things like that were still you know you didn't have the same ease of getting into systems like Amazon or onto store shelves or having a lot of customer data. So it didn't seem like there was a lot of control over the business um, as much as there is today, or at least there can be today. So that was a challenge. On the flip side, um, we had a lot of support from people who had seen the product early. So we pre-sold five units. We actually got really great advice during YC when we were planning to launch Kickstarter. They said, before you have this massive campaign, just see if you can build five and sell them. And you'll learn so much more by doing that before you spend a lot of money and time developing something that it turns out maybe people don't want. And of those first five users, three of them invested personally. So that was a very um, interesting dynamic for us, where people who knew the product very well were supportive of us, and that helped build some momentum for fundraising. And and the Kickstarter campaign, how how much did you guys raise with that? The Kickstarter campaign, we raised uh, about four hundred thousand um, dollars. It was about three hundred and fifty uh, skateboards at the time, and uh, it was a it was a big challenge in, in two ways. One is we didn't want to have too many orders because it's actually much more challenging to build uh, 10,000 of something when you're planning to build 500 in, in the hardware world. Uh, you don't have the same supply chain and the same processes set up, uh, and it can often take a lot longer, add more risk. So we actually wanted to limit the number of units that we sold. And then second, there hadn't been a history in Kickstarter of people backing projects where you might, you know, might be doing $1,000 or more. Uh, on Kickstarter, and so we weren't sure if people would trust, you know, us, you know, people they'd never met before, and and put that much money on Kickstarter towards us, something they hadn't seen or touched or knew anything about. Because what was the price of each uh, of each electric uh, longboard that you guys were uh, selling? Uh, it was between a thousand and fifteen hundred dollars, so it was quite quite pricey, especially for an online online system. Yeah, and I guess for the for the people that are listening, you know, perhaps there's a bunch of them that are thinking about the crowdfunding route to kind of like pre-sell their product and get some money in. And, you know, one of the misconceptions that I see is that people think that they're just going to put it up, 
and then people are just going to come in and start giving them a ton of money. So I guess in your guys' case, what do you think were like some of the key lessons and, and things that you did very well leading up to the campaign to be successful? Yeah, it's um, a good question. I, I think the biggest uh, lesson that I took away from that process that I didn't realize at the beginning was that um, Kickstarter campaigns and more generally pre-sales are selling the idea of how good the product can be. They're selling the perception of the product, not the reality of the product. So when you pre-order a new iPhone or when you, you know, pre-order the Model 3 Tesla, you're, you don't have much, if any, experience with how the product will work, and you're betting on something. And what often happens with great Kickstarter campaigns is you can have a mismatch between the perception of the product um, when someone makes the order and then the reality of it afterwards. And that difference is what really drives uh, how people talk about it with their friends and how they might recommend it to someone else, the word of mouth, which is actually the most important thing. So it, it's easy to think that the key to a successful Kickstarter campaign is a, uh, a great video or you know, very careful pricing studies and, and different things like this. And if the definition of success is to raise as much money as possible, then that is true. But I actually believe that um, raising as much money as possible for like a physical product idea is maybe not the best thing for Kickstarter. Because then if you put in all, place all the things to ship that volume and then people are disappointed, um, you don't get, you know, you, it's not a replicable thing just because, you know, people did a thousand, you know, uh, orders in that one month campaign doesn't mean the next month they'll do a thousand. And so the big challenge is you do this campaign and people maybe are slightly disappointed or it's not amazing for them. And then how do you sell the next ones? So we focused um, a lot more on how to exceed expectations uh, with the product and not overpromise. And actually my co-founder, uh, John, was really good about this where, you know, we said the prototype, for example, was 12 pounds and he had wanted to budget up to 15 pounds in the in the spec because he wasn't sure what the final product would need in terms of protective enclosures to the battery and things like this. And so my initial draft of the campaign said 12 pounds. And he said, no, no, you have to put 12 to 15 pounds. We don't want to under, under deliver. And so that was very important through the whole process of setting expectations with those first users and then uh, really thrilling them with what they got. That's amazing because the, the problem that I see there is, is people get the money in and then it's like, hey, it's time to fill those orders. You know, it's, uh, it's not you get the money and you get to keep it. You're pre-selling your product and you need to deliver. So unfortunately, there's a lot of people that that get disappointed. No, And and, and one of the things that maybe, you know, helped help you guys with this was from a social proof perspective to show validation and to show that the market was ready for what you were doing, perhaps towards fundraising conversations with 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 the larger ticket size investors. No. Um, yeah, the, the, the larger investors, they cared about things like distribution channels. So with physical products, the idea of a direct-to-consumer brand, if you think about Dollar Shave Club and more recent companies that have done CPG uh, that are all direct, there was less of that at the time. So one thing they would care about is what are the margins that you have in your product and do they support selling that product on a store shelf? And even if you do sell on a store shelf, what will happen if you have a really great Christmas one year and maybe less of a great Christmas you know, sales season the next year. And you've seen this happen with even public companies like GoPro and Fitbit, where sometimes performance one year to the next can be slightly lower. Um, and then they have to think about what the next product refresh looks like. So there's a lot of concerns from investors about where you get like a very large return 
um, for physical product companies. Um, but I think that our takeaway initially was less concerned about that. We weren't trying to have a successful Kickstarter in order to raise money. It was more, how do we make sure that um, we're focused on the right thing, which we felt, and I still believe, is uh, building a product that people continue to use as opposed to building a product that people buy. So if you think about software products, you know we've moved from this world where people focused on downloads um, or installs to one where people focus on retention and how people are still using the app later. And that is a much better sign of health of a software product than, than downloads. And so with hardware products, it's easy to think about sales because that's where the revenue comes from, but it's actually not a necessarily a leading indicator of health of the business because it's the equivalent of the download. If it goes into a drawer or it goes into a closet as if it's a physical product or you don't recommend it to your friends or you get bored with it, then the fundamentals of the business may not be as strong as you think from a, an initial pre-sales campaign. So then on a hardware product, how do you, what, what's the equivalent to the retention that you get on a, let's say like a SaaS service? Well, there, there's two things you could look at. One is, um, you know, uh, one is kind of more philosophical and one is more practical. So a practical version of this is, do you have a recurring revenue component to the product? So if you look at companies like Peloton, uh, they have a subscription to their uh, bike uh, kind of video service where you can do training with a tablet that's on the bike. And I, I, what I've heard publicly is that the retention uh, of that recurring revenue stream is very high, which you know hopefully indicates that people are continuing to use the bike six months after they purchased it versus it just sitting you know in the corner of your house. So there's things you can do like recurring revenue Obviously, a lot of investors like recurring revenue, um, and it's good for a business in many ways, um, but it's an indication that people are continuing to use the product as well. The other way, which is what we used to think about it with, was if you were to, uh, if the product were to break today, like which things do you own where if they broke today, you would go buy a new one tomorrow? And that list is actually quite short, right? Maybe your smartphone, maybe your laptop, maybe your car, if you use a car to get to work every day a lot of the appliances in your house, the router, um, but not necessarily like, you know, certain products, like maybe GoPros or action cameras for most of us don't fit in that category. And so if you're not in that category, it can be dangerous because you get it because it seems like a good idea. And then it turns out maybe to be less of one in day-to-day -day use. And then now the question that that company has is how do I sell you another thing? As opposed to this is something that's become very useful and is like a required part of your life. And that doesn't have to apply to everybody. It could also be products for like parents, um, for their babies, right? You don't have to necessarily appeal to everybody, but I think for some group of people, you do have to be necessary. So then how much capital did you guys end up uh, raising for Boosted? Um, so we raised a uh, two, a little over $2 million seed round. Um, and then, uh, and then use that money to go from, uh, you know, delivering this first few hundred, uh, units, um, and, uh, starting to fulfill some of the demand we'd gotten after the Kickstarter. Uh, which is a process that took about uh, a year to a year and a half, about 15 months. And then you did your your A, your B. So so walk us through what were some of the milestones and, and progress that you were making from financing cycle to financing cycle? Yeah. So with Boosted, you know, we, we spent uh, kind of the first three months um, that we were really working uh, full-time on this to sell five units that we built uh, without any tooling or anything like that and, and validating that people uh, like the product. And what we heard from those users was uh, this product changed my life. 
um, or it changed the way I interact with my city because it fulfilled this need that people had to get, you know, maybe, uh, you know, anywhere between half a mile and two or three miles from where they lived or where they worked. And there was not a good way to cover those distances in something like a car because of how much time you would spend parking or sitting in traffic, especially in a dense city. And so essentially, if you live in a city um, today that doesn't have micromobility systems, getting a mile away or two miles away, really the only option is either walking, um, which can be very lengthy, um, or you know, if it's a warm city, maybe you're sweating by the time you get there, uh, or uh, you're using a car and you might be moving on average you know, five miles an hour because you're sitting in traffic and waiting for the car to arrive and then looking for parking. Uh, and it can be very expensive with things like rideshare. So these short trips, you know, it really changed people's lives. And that was, you know, obviously the skateboard platform was not a something meant to appeal to everybody, but it validated that something was there. So that was our first kind of three, four months. Then we did a Kickstarter campaign in the fall of 2012, and then spent the next year and three months uh, getting to a shippable product, which was a huge endeavor. So it was very difficult. We didn't have a lot of um, uh, leverage with part suppliers. We, we were trying to use automotive grade lithium battery cells because we wanted the battery to be very safe. And the people who supplied those cells wouldn't call, return our calls because we were too small. So we had to find creative ways to get access to, you know, systems that we thought were the right pieces and build a lot of this ourselves because we couldn't buy them off the shelf. And so we spent that 15 months developing the product, shipping the first few hundred of them. Um, and then we raised our A round and used that to uh, kind of expand the distribution and expand the product uh, and develop it further. And so that was a process that went from, you know, middle of 2014 till uh, the middle of 2017. How much did you guys raise on the A round? Uh, we raised uh, about 10 million. Got it. Yeah. So then that would put you at about a little bit over 12. So then let's talk about like what was the shift that needed to happen to, to be able to achieve the B from the A? Yeah, so the, the A round was... was um, Uh, it helped us test out things like price points and distribution. So one, for example, thing we were able to test was we had to raise our prices uh, back uh, between the end of the Kickstarter campaign and starting to ship product. So we were able to ship the Kickstarter units at the price we promised, but we had a lot more demand. And we realized that the initial cost, you know, when you added up all the pieces that we built with the safety features that we thought were necessary, the actual cost of that vehicle was much higher than we planned. And so we said, okay, we can either keep selling this thing, but at break even, or even make losing money per unit, or we can raise the price and work on how to get that cost down, but be able to at least make money per unit. So we made that decision to raise the price, which was difficult, but definitely the right decision to do. Um, and what was interesting to learn there was most of the, the customers who were most upset, they really wanted the product. And so one of the things we did, uh, and again, this was kind of a YC, like do things that don't scale moment was uh, I got on the phone with each of them. I just sent them my email. And I, I sent them an email and said, hey, here's my phone number. You know, if you want to understand why we did this, please give me a call. And I think almost all of them ended up actually buying the product at the higher price once they realized why we had raised it. So, um, so it was really interesting to connect with customers, understand what they cared about. As we then were able to test price points and distribution and maybe go into a channel like Amazon or a retail channel, um, we grew that business very well. And then we ran into supply chain issues. So we had a battery uh, recall. We had two batteries with customers for our second generation vehicle where some smoke uh, came out of the battery. Um, and we found out later it was because of the way a waterproof seal had been uh, installed incorrectly uh, at the factory. And uh, the battery essentially was allowing water to enter and cause a short circuit. 
So it wasn't like the it wasn't like the hoverboard type of incidents, but it was uh, producing smoke and it you know led us to stop producing the vehicle and make sure we fixed it before we started shipping again. So once we got that uh, in place, we started to build out more of the leadership team, hire some really great people, uh, talented folks. We actually brought in a new CEO, um, someone who had been a, a manager of larger teams and companies before, but also had a similar robotics and hardware background. Um, and then we started to look at other form factors of vehicles. Uh, and that helped us um, raise the next round of funding because we could take the success we saw with the skateboard and apply it to other vehicles because it was really kind of similar to, if you think about Tesla building the battery for the Roadster and then the Model S and the Model 3, it's kind of the same technology stack, just applied to different types of cars. So it was the same idea of, could you apply all the learning from the skateboard to something like a scooter, uh, which is coming out very soon. Got it. And all in all, we're looking at, you guys raised like about 70 million? That's right. Yes. And mm -hmm. I see great people, Cosla Ventures, SB Angel, Inovia, eh, Capital. So so really great, great people. So you were talking that that you guys brought on board the CEO, and I guess that mm -hmm. probably allowed you um, more time to be able to 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 put your head up and see what's going on around you. And then at what point at what point do you make the decision to leave your baby and to and to start skip? Yeah, so we, we decided to start looking for the CEO at the early part of 2017. And one of the things we were trying to figure out was not just who's the right person to bring in to, to be able to scale the business and drive some of these operational goals, but also, uh, you know, where can I spend my time most helpfully? And, you know, we, we did a lot of discussion as co-founders and with the board and with the team about where I could be most helpful. Um, and I had had some really interesting ideas around subscription and kind of on-demand services for micromobility. So not just an ownership model, but a model where... I can get access to a vehicle when I wanted. Um, and what we realized is, you know, as a startup, you have to focus and you can't try to do too many things at once, uh, a mistake that I've made many times. And, you know, to try to explore those things within uh, a company that's very focused on ownership and making sure that business is working well and executing well didn't seem like it was going to work very well because either I would be working on something on the side, which wasn't core to the business, um, or I wouldn't really be able to fully explore it because, you know, I'm, I'm trying to stay focused and help to keep the team focused on just executing on what we were already planning to do. So I decided to, you know, remain on the board of directors, but, but take a break for a bit and think about how to pursue that if I wanted to, or maybe a different project. Um, and so I, you know, kind of remained helpful, but I, I left the company kind of full-time in the summer of 2017, uh, you know, and remained helpful, but kind of took a break for about six months. And did you stay there in, in San Francisco or were you like traveling or what were you doing during that break? I traveled a little bit. Uh, one of the more interesting places I traveled, it's funny, there was uh, there were some ideas we had had about micromobility and the idea that you really want to measure door-to-door -door speed. So if you think about like software apps, uh, people are very careful about measuring um, uh, load times and latency in the app. So for example, if you're um, using, let's say like Photoshop, then you might be willing to tolerate 30 seconds for the application to load. Whereas if you're using something like, um, uh, you know, like a WhatsApp, uh, you may not be willing to tolerate anything more than one second or two seconds. And so it turns out the shorter the amount of time you're interacting with the app, the, uh, you know, the, the, the faster everything has to be. Um, right. So similarly with transportation, if you're going to take a longer trip, you're willing to wait more time. You're willing to go to like a gas station and fill your car up if you're taking a road trip or you're willing to wait for the Uber if you're going to go for 20, 30 minutes. 
But we've all been in a situation, I think, where we've waited for, let's say, a rideshare or taxi longer than it took to actually take the trip, uh, which is a very frustrating experience. And that's what was so magical about micromobility. So I'd been thinking about this, and the only other person I'd ever seen talk about it was this guy named Horace Didieu, uh, who on Twitter goes by uh, uh, Asimco. And he had been an Apple analyst for many years. He looked at mobile, and he'd been putting up these graphs about how micromobility was actually this very interesting disruptive force, uh, and nobody was paying attention. Um, so he hosted this small conference in Copenhagen um, in the fall of 2018, no, the fall of 2017, so a few months after I'd left Boosted. And I was like, man, I've been drawing this graph in my notebook. And the only other place I've ever seen this graph drawn is from this guy's Twitter. I should go meet this guy. And so one of the trips that I took uh, was to Copenhagen. And I met a bunch of incredibly interesting people in micromobility. But at this very small conference before any of these you know, companies in the space had really launched and everything was very early. Uh, so that was maybe the most interesting trip I took and the most relevant. Now that same conference today is, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people in multiple cities. But at the time, it was just maybe 30 or 40 in, in Copenhagen. Got it. So then what was the, um, walk us through the immediate steps until uh, Skip Scooters comes to life? So the, the story of Skip actually starts in the summer of 2017. So right when I was leaving Boosted, my old co-founder, Matt, so one of the three of us that had started, he had left Boosted earlier, and he was obsessed with scooters. And he thought they were, everyone was going to be using these. It had all these qualities about uh, you know, the micromobility that we thought were interesting, but he said, you know, it's easy for everyone to use it compared to a skateboard. Uh, and I thought he was crazy. I was like, there's no way people are going to ride this thing. Uh, I was thinking it was going to be much more something like bikes, but he was very, um, adamant that scooters were actually a really good platform for this. So he and our other friend, Mike had tested this, um, idea of scooter sharing in San Francisco in the summer of 2017. So before any of this, um, craze had happened and they were setting up at the Caltrain station near the public transit stop. Um, and you could text a phone number and get access to a scooter. Uh, basically, there's a scooter. If you texted, the phone number would unlock, and then you could ride it and then drop it off the Caltrain station. But it wasn't purely dockless because San Francisco and indeed most U.S. and European cities had been very restrictive about uh, just allowing dockless vehicles to come in the way that they became so popular in China because of concerns around parking on sidewalks and just like a lot of crowding and oversupply of vehicles. So they were very restrictive, and a company that had tried to launch in San Francisco called Blue Bilgo um, actually had to shut down their operations because the city didn't allow it. So the next step for them was we're going to find a way to create a permit for the city to test this idea out. And Mike and Matt actually created the first scooter sharing permit, uh, I think, in the world, um, definitely in the United States, uh, in Washington, D.C. Uh, and so they worked with the city DOT to create a permit that limited the number of vehicles, that created ways for the city to hold us accountable for the safety of the vehicle. Um, and the DC as a transportation department was very progressive in allowing these experiments to run. And so they they like got that permit right around the time that I started talking to them. Um, and I was like, oh, this is actually, you know, maybe this uh, the scooters are a good platform. Um, and we'd worked together in the past, so we started working together on, on Skip at that point. And one thing that I saw that that it was mind blowing to me is that you literally raised your seat, your Series A, and then also a big debt round. I think something along the lines of 130 million or so within the same year. How did that happen? Yeah, so so scooters are uh, are an interesting um, business because uh, for every scooter you put on the road, you generate revenue. Um, the customer acquisition cost is essentially zero. 
uh, and the each each vehicle, each asset generates revenue every day. So the ability to double your revenue for most businesses is constrained by something, right? The ability to acquire customers or channels or just you know the time um, it takes for someone to make the purchase decisions. If you're about enterprise software, you have to make the sale. Um, with scooters, literally, you could double your revenue from one day to the next if you just put twice as many scooters on the road. Um, and it wasn't clear where the saturation point was, but it was high enough that it became something where you could grow incredibly quickly. And what's interesting is, as John Doerr had actually had this um, theory about the Segway back in 2000. If you remember, um, there was a lot of hype about the Segway before it came out, and there was a book published about it. And there was these quotes like, this is going to be as important as the internet. And, uh, uh, you know, this may be the fastest company to ever reach a billion dollars in sales. And it was very prescient because even, you know, even though the, the ownership piece of it maybe wasn't the right initial approach, um, this turns out to be one of the fastest growing revenue markets um, in history because you can, you can control your revenue growth by just deploying more vehicles. So the ability of companies to go and deploy a lot of vehicles very quickly um, is very attractive for venture capital because they can turn that investment dollars into a lot of revenue and, and growth obviously is a huge component of how the venture model works. So right. one of the reasons we were able to raise capital along with many other players very quickly was because there seemed to be an incredible amount of growth potential in the business and people, um, especially people who had maybe missed out on things like ride sharing um, uh, before it was kind of too late to achieve very, very large returns wanted to make sure they didn't miss the next next time that happened. So there was a lot of interest in the space in a very short amount of time. And and great folks, again, that you guys onboarded. I mean, Axel, again, you did Y Combinator, uh, SB Angels, Menlo Ventures, Maven. So really, really great folks. Uh, why did you go to Y Combinator again? So uh, a bunch of reasons. But Y Combinator was actually a great forcing function for us as a company to um, to get in good habits. And so many people I had spoken to who had done Y Combinator a second time uh, had said, you know, you learn different things going through the second time, but it was very valuable. And, and they would do it again if, if given the choice. And so when we were looking at whether to do this, actually, one of the people who inspired us to really push forward with this was uh, PG, um, who we had, had not been actively part of Y Combinator more recently, but we had known from when we had done it in 2012 with Boosted. And uh, he actually... Uh, encouraged us to apply and and go, go through the program. And so our experience with YC was very different because we already had a validated product market fit uh, model. So it wasn't as much exploring you know, whether people would use this as much as how do we set up the business to scale very quickly. And so um, we went through YC a second time and we actually worked much more with uh, partners who had uh, more growth experience and less, uh, we were working less with the product, uh, with the partners who were doing more of the early stage, you know, how do you find the users? Um, but it was really? still a fantastic program the second time. And really cool. And PG, for the ones that are listening, that's Paul Graham. Is that right? The founder yes, of White Combinator. Right. Really, really? Yeah, awesome. w w w one of the founders, yes. Great. So then, so then one, a space like this, I mean, everyone has been talking about electric scooters and there is definitely a, quite a bit of competition. I mean, there is a, other companies that are doing this as well. So what have you learned from operating in, in such a competitive environment? Um, so initially, the competition was quite scary. Uh, it's very easy for companies to be scared by competitors. And again, I keep coming back to things that sometimes people tell you and uh, you don't realize how true they are until later. One of those was, again, a YC uh, kind of lesson that they keep telling you, which is 
it's much more likely that you'll be um, uh, hurt, hurting your company uh, through uh, your own uh, work than from a competitor. Um, and, and that the, uh, the lesson um, uh, is to focus on your own, your own users and how to serve them and not spend your time thinking about your competition. So with a lot of money getting raised in the space, there was a, a lot of focus for us on competition initially. And when we refocused our efforts, we said, well, is this a good business? How does this work? And what we've uh, realized and, and kind of where we lean on some of our experiences with Boosted is that uh, if you think about a service like Uber, uh, you know, Uber or, or Lyft, you know, ride sharing companies, they rely on the maturity of companies like Toyota or, or Honda or Ford, uh, where the car, you know, is going to work uh, very reliably from one day to the next. Um, but with scooters, we're still in a very immature phase of the of the hardware. So you know, you aren't, you're not really sure how long the scooter is going to last. You're not really sure when it breaks, how it's going to break. Uh, you're not really sure that you'll know something's broken um, or there might be an issue with how it's designed. And so you can end up, um, you're, you're essentially trying to start Uber, but like with the Ford Model T. And if you think about the Model T era for cars, there was no oil change infrastructure. There was no gas station infrastructure. You know, you couldn't buy tires online and get them shipped to you the next day. You know, there was none of that uh, in place. And so you had to build a lot of those infrastructure pieces yourself. And so we learned that Boosted was vertically integrating on the hardware plus the software meant that you could control a lot more of the safety and the reliability of the vehicles. And so we started to focus a lot more of our effort on just getting our uh, fleet to run well and specifically to run well with positive unit economics. Um, because the thing people didn't realize early on in the scooter space is because there was no accounting precedent for how scooter sharing would work. Uh, it appeared that economics could be good, but then when you really dug in uh, and, and included the cost of the scooter, uh, it turned out that it could be very negative. And scaling a business with very negative economics you know, can require a lot of additional capital that you may or may not have access to later. So we focused, one, on economics through hardware, and the second was we felt like working with cities and making sure that the system would work well for not just the people who ride the vehicle, but the people who don't use it uh, was very important. And a lot of technology companies, you know, when you create a product, your users don't, uh, don't really affect the people around them uh, with the way they use the product. With scooters, they do. You know, where they park the scooter, where they ride the scooter can deeply affect their neighbors um, and can even be dangerous if they're, you know, riding on the sidewalk at a high speed. So you have to think about building a system that serves not just the people who are riding it and giving you revenue, but also the people who are, um, who are, who are uh, around them, their neighbors and the communities and the cities. So yeah. those two focus areas led us to uh, do things a little bit differently from our competitors uh, and just stay focused on our users. Makes sense. Makes sense. And I guess the, in the space, you know, as mentioned, quite competitive. There's a lot of people and, and, and a lot of people are actually raising a lot of money. I mean, hundreds of millions. Is there like mm -hmm. a, a, at any point, like a, a moment in which you fear that these guys with so much money, you know, they could do something stupid and create a negative precedent in the, in the space? Um, I, I think the, the biggest thing is that cities want this to work well. Uh, like they, they have a lot of uh, desire for cities, especially the, the denser areas of the cities to have fewer cars and for the right vehicles to be used for the right reasons. So not that they're against cars, but just cars are great for longer trips, you know, um, maybe to go to the mountains or 
or from vacation or to travel between cities, but maybe not so much to travel inside a city. But the cities really want this to work. Um, that's clear. And the devices, the vehicles themselves, scooters or their form factors need a lot of work to make them um, have the same type of safety expectations we have with other vehicles like cars. And so setting those expectations early that, hey, look, you know, you'll probably fall off of this thing at some point, uh, that's important. Um, so if we, if we try to grow too quickly, what can end up happening is um, cities uh, push back uh, harder on the idea of this being a good solution. And you'll end up with um, uh, safety issues that crop up because you are not setting the right expectations with the riders. So those are the two places where trying to grow too quickly, uh, raise a lot of money, and then justify the money by continuing to grow very quickly uh, can create some negative effects. But overall, I think this industry is very exciting. And I think the growth potential just shows you, you know, how much this is, how important this is and how much people are adopting it because they, it, it is actually a better solution for cities than things like cars. So then, so then talking about the industry as a whole, uh, micromobility, where, where do you see the, the industry heading? Where do you think it's going to be, let's say, in five to 10 years from now? Uh, I think it's going to be uh, incredibly interesting. So if you think about um, um, kind of the, the vehicle as like a, a bike or a scooter that just has a lock on it, uh, that's one way to think about it. And actually, that's the way people thought about uh, feature phones and smartphones was you would just, you know, add more buttons or make the operating system slightly different. But actually, what was powerful about the smartphone um, that, that ended up being successful, both you know, Android and, and uh, iOS and other platforms, was it was really a tiny computer. and um, one thing that's going to be really exciting in the next five to 10 years is these vehicles are going to be uh, more like a small car in the sense of the, um, how much the technology advances on them and less like a, a better bike or a better scooter. They're going to be much safer. They're going to be much more intelligent. They're going to have a lot of sensors and connectivity on them. And this is the first fleet of vehicles in history where every vehicle is always connected to the internet. So if you think about knowing like where accidents occur or where people are riding on sidewalks, or uh, how the vehicles um, are self-diagnosing problems. Uh, it's a completely different way to think about vehicle fleets than any vehicle fleet in history. So that's going to be really interesting. And then as cities are continuing to get more dense, like more ride sharing and more e-commerce delivery uh, and more urbanization, those are all driving traffic and congestion to be worse. Uh, you're seeing the average speed on a car lane in the cities across the world getting lower. Um, those things are going to drive more people into places like the bike lane, where a small vehicle that's regulated like a bike, you know, is faster and more affordable because you can park it, you know, in a much more compact space. You can use bike lanes. You can go through areas of the city that are more friendly than where you take a car. And the net effect of that is going to be more infrastructure for these vehicles um, and uh, cities that are more livable. And I think that's going to be a really positive change. And the first step of this is all these people using uh, things like micromobility for the first time and realizing how much better quality of life is uh, when you're not in a car in a city. Of course. And and how big is Skip today? Um, so Skip operates today uh, in two major hub markets, San Francisco and Washington, D.C. Um, and uh, we have a few other cities around those that we, we test in. Um, and, uh, you know, we don't disclose like our employee count or anything like that. Um, but we are um, in terms of our focus, we're um, much more heavily on like software and hardware engineering uh, than on scaling operations right now. Really cool. So then, so then, one question that I always ask uh, guests here, Sanjay, is um, 
I mean, you, you've been at now, this is your second company, so, so you've been exposed to a lot of stuff uh, during this uh, rodeo. So if you had the opportunity to speak with your younger self and give yourself one piece of advice before launching a business, what would that be and why? Hmm. I think that piece of advice would be uh, if you feel like um, uh, th there's a lot of joy that comes with working with people who are really great at their area of study. Uh, and as an engineer, I've, I've always had that experience of working with like great lab mates and great people, colleagues um, and learning that that's true across a whole organization. Um, so, for example, a lot of my engineering friends, you know, when we were in school, we were like, oh, you know, marketing is just, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, uh, you know, someone who believes in marketing, right? I'm very logical. I make rational purchasing decisions. Uh, but then you work with somebody who's really great in marketing and you realize like what the power of that is uh, in terms of like making, making something people want and communicating that effectively. So if I could give myself one piece of advice, it would be to seek out the people who are very like uh, excellent at what they do and uh, build uh, that expertise around you um, more quickly. Uh, and, uh, and have like a really fantastic group of folks to help build a company with you. Um, versus, uh, I think a lot of entrepreneurs make this mistake of like not delegating soon enough or not hiring for gaps. Um, and instead trying to become better at things they're, uh, they're not good at, um, versus doubling down on the things you are good at and complimenting yourself with excellent people in other areas. So if I could give myself that advice early on, it would have, it would have, I think, saved me a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, pain and mistakes in the past. I love it. So for the folks that are listening, what is the best way to reach out and say hi? Uh, so you can find me on Twitter uh, at Sanjay Dastour. Um, you could email me. Uh, my email is Sanjay at skipscooters.com. I'm happy to provide advice. I especially like to help people who are thinking about physical product companies. I think there's a lot of nuance to how uh, those companies can be successful or not. So, you know, happy to chat, shoot me a line um, and thank you. Amazing. Well, Sanjay, thank you so much for being on the Deal Maker Show today. Thank you so much, Alejandro. I appreciate it. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.